Welcome back to another episode of the Relational Grace Podcast, where we feature the teachings of Pastor Nick Harris, who taught us that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. I'm Jamie Russell, Pastor Harris's son. In this episode, we'll continue on with the sixth installment of the Nehemiah series. This message will review the specifics as well as the types and shadows surrounding the final of the four essentials from the last installment of Nehemiah. First, let's start with a recap of the four essentials Nehemiah requested from King Artaxerxes. The first, of course, was adequate time. The second is proper authority. And the third is abundant resources. The fourth, which we'll focus on in this episode, takes a much closer look at the necessity of capable personnel. So without further ado, go ahead and grab those letters of authority and get ready to clothe yourself in the armor of God as we listen to episode six of the Nehemiah series titled, His Band of Warrior Angels. Now, beloved, the inside of the emperor would prove to be indispensable. Violent opposition did indeed arise. And the presence of that imperial guard did indeed play an instrumental role in the completion of the project and in saving Nehemiah's very life. However, not even the emperor himself could have foreseen how quickly Nehemiah's opposition would appear. Nehemiah had scarcely, beloved, listen to me now, he had scarcely entered the boundaries of Judea when hostile elements began to make their voices heard. Nehemiah 2.10 states this, and I quote, When Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah the Ammonite heard of it, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel, end quote. Now, here's what I deduce from reading this text. The text tells me that the political power in Judea was concentrated in the hands of those two men, Tobiah and Sanballat. Now, neither of these men were Jews. They governed Judea, but they were not Jews. Now, oddly enough here, even though these men exercised total authority over Judea. Now, here's what you have to understand. Neither of these men was the actual governor of the tiny province. Now, how could this be? How could two men from outside the province of Judea exercise such total authority? Well, the answer lay in the relative insignificance of Judea in the Persian Empire. As I have previously indicated in this series of broadcasts, Judea was one of the very smallest in all the 127 Persian provinces. The entire province was only 24 miles deep and 20 miles wide. The geographical size of Dallas, Texas, without much of its metro area. Since the province was so obscure, a governor had never been appointed here. And as a result, authority over Judea had been mainly entrusted to the powerful governor of the large satrapy to the north of Judea known as Samaria. Residual authority had been given to the governor of Ammon. Now, the governor of the larger state of Samaria went by the name Sanballat, as I said earlier, Sanballat the Horonite. Now, this man Sanballat, Sanballat now let me tell you about him. He was, a, he was a true tyrant. And I can tell you this as well. He hated 
the Jewish minority over which he exercised authority. He hated them. For years, this man Sanballat had ruled Judea with a rod of iron. Few political decisions had been rendered in Judea without the personal knowledge and without the personal approval of this Horonite. Even the emperor himself had rarely interfered with Sanballat's activities. Now, the news that a Jewish courtesan had arrived in Judea from Shushan with letters of authority that would allow him to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem was a real blow to Sanballat. I mean, this almost knocked him off his feet. Now, being the consummate politician, Sanballat was more than well aware that a walled and fortified city of Jerusalem would immediately regain its former power and would soon require its own governor. He also realized that the appearance of an independent, powerful Judea would severely reduce his base of authority and would greatly diminish his prestige in the entire area. In other words, he was about to see himself worked into a corner. These letters of authority that Nehemiah carried took precedence over any command that Sanballat would ever again issue concerning Judea, and he knew it. Without question, the knowledge of this termination of authority greatly antagonized the Samaritan. In fact, these new letters generated the most murderous kinds of thoughts, not only in the mind of Sanballat, but in the mind of other powerful Samaritans as well. They would have all liked to have destroyed Nehemiah. But the problem is they couldn't. Why? The royal guards sent by Artaxerxes ensured that fact. Now, while the news of Nehemiah's imminent arrival aroused hostility in Samaria, those who lived in the city of Jerusalem were absolutely overjoyed. Can you imagine? Years of absolute autocratic rule had certainly taken a toll on the morale and courage of the Jewish people. Sanballat and other tyrants had wielded their authority over the Judeans with few signs of human compassion or human concern. In fact, Nehemiah 2.10 demonstrates how little concern the autocrat from Samaria actually had for his Jewish subjects. According to that verse, when Sanballat heard that an imperial attache had come to see after the quote-unquote well-being of the Jews, he was quote-unquote deeply distressed. Now, obviously, This man cared nothing for the Jewish people, and his heartless reaction to the arrival of Nehemiah proved this fact. Now, my friends, the spiritual typology that exists in this callous reaction of Sanballat to his subjects cannot be ignored. The actions and decisions of Sanballat offer a relatively clear type and shadow to me of the work of that arch-fiend, Satan. As a matter of fact, Sanballat is a type and shadow of Satan. Now, as the events surrounding Nehemiah's arrival unfold in the book, this tyrant from Samaria, resembling Satan, will use many of the classic ploys that Satan utilizes in his role as the ruler of this present world. You see, this man, Sanballat, and his diabolical assistant, Tobiah the Amorite, and their various henchmen all reflect 
those malignant spiritual enemies of God that Paul calls the principalities, powers, and rulers of darkness in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. Now, the apostle clearly affirms in that passage that these principalities and powers are forces of abject evil that continually battle to prevent God's elect from rebuilding their inner lives. Sanballat reflects this same satanic opposition as the schemes to foil the rebuilding of the ruined walls and streets of Jerusalem unfold. And he's not alone. Sanballat's not alone. The story of Nehemiah is filled with types and shadows of satanic opposition. And because of the relevance of this imagery, a preview of Satan, a satanic activity may now be in order here. Now, beloved, whenever the Bible makes mention of Satan or the devil, it describes a real personality. Now, it's not talking about an abstract force or a vague mental impression. The Bible portrays Satan as being an actual being, a person who is as real as Sanballat and who opposes everything that God wills to do in the earthly realm. If God wills it, Satan opposes it, my friends. But then, if Satan is not an abstract force, neither is he a literal metaphysical being with horns and a tail. Rather, the devil is a distinctly vile spiritual personality who governs the diabolical forces that continually strive to enslave, to defeat, and to destroy anything that is righteous, healthy, and good in the physical realm. Now, this aggressive evil presence continually works to destroy those who are his foes. As 1 Peter 5, 8 declares, Be sober, be vigilant, for your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, goeth about seeking whom he may devour. Now, obviously, Simon Peter, in his epistle, saw the enemy that faces God's people as far more than a passive enemy. Peter saw him as a foe who actually, now get this, understand this, my friends, who actually stalks the people of God, seeking to find those who are vulnerable to him. Now, the vulnerable Christians are those who fail to utilize the protective cover of the full armor of our God. Here's the tragedy. Satan can devour these poorly defended Christians because they have not clothed themselves with everything that God has provided to ensure their safety. And what are these divinely provided articles which protect us from Satan's assaults? Well, you know what they are. There's a belt of truth. There's a breastplate of righteousness. There's a helmet of salvation. There are sandals of the gospel. There's a shield of faith. And a believer also has access to a sword and a, sh and a shield. Now, all of those marvelous letters of authority which constitute the Word of God apply to that sword. You see, the sword is the Word of God. As a matter of fact, Paul refers to the Word of God as being and I quote, 
the sword of the Spirit. And this sword, beloved, is a weapon that you can use to even defeat a roaring lion. Those who wear the full armor of God and carry the sword of the Spirit of God are sealed. Now that word means protected. Protected by the divine name of the Son of God. They cannot be personally devoured, nor can their homes be destroyed, nor can their finances be wrecked, nor can their morals be compromised, because they are sealed by their armor and by the mighty name of Jesus Christ. So even though fully equipped warriors cannot be devoured, they can be attacked, my friends. And I don't know where you live, but I can tell you this, Satan continues to assault me and every other believer I know, especially through the weapon of accusation. Now, since the name Satan means accuser, and the word devil means slanderer, it is only natural that he uses accusations in his attacks. He'll always do this. He constantly makes accusations against the people of God. And by so doing, he hopes to destroy any sense of assurance that a believer might feel in their lives. Satan knows that if he can just be successful in these attacks, he can break down our resistance and he can devour us. And I can promise you this. Satan has become very effective in his tactics over the centuries. He's become a formidable foe. Now, as you know, God originally created this being in absolute perfection. He was an archangel. And he was assigned to be the supreme worship leader of heaven. His ministry was to cover the throne of God with continual worship and praise. Now, God gave to this being the awesome name Lucifer, which means the son of the morning. Now, obviously, by bestowing such a name, God was declaring this created being to be a now, now listen to what pastor says so you don't misunderstand this. He declares this created being to be a son of God, not the son of God. But eventually, a time came when this once perfect being chose to rebel against his creator, and as a result, this being fell from grace. And when he was cast from heaven in disgrace, this now malignant creature took one-third of the angelic hosts of heaven with him. In fact, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, this fallen angel eventually became the God of this world. He received this title deed when Adam surrendered the dominion over the earth to him. And in exchange for this dominion, Adam was given the ability to know good and evil. And since that day, my friends, Satan has held the right to govern the earth. Yet in spite of his great influence and power, Satan still lacks the godlike powers of omnipotence or omniscience. In fact, his abilities have been greatly restricted for the last 2,000 years. At that time, Jesus of Nazareth was crucified on Calvary and he died physically. And as death overcame him, he entered the throne room of Satan's authority. 
but before he departed from Satan's realm. He had legally redeemed a tiny piece of Satan's dominion for himself. With his own precious blood, Jesus Christ purchased that spot where his cross had stood. He now legally owned a tiny piece of ground in the very heart of Satan's realm. Now, since Christ has always been a citizen, citizen of heaven and not a citizen of this world, this piece of ground would eventually serve as an embassy of his kingdom in the midst of Satan's kingdom. Christ promised those who would someday serve in his embassy that he would make three arrangements which would assist them in developing and expanding these holdings. First, he promised that he would personally build their embassy. And I'm talking here about the church, of course, on that land. Secondly, he promised to give that embassy all the authority that it would require to operate in the midst of the hostile surrounding governments. And then finally, he told them that he would send them a builder to enable them to expand this embassy. And he told his disciples that when this builder arrived, he would come fully equipped with all the authority he required to do the job. And he would also equip all of those occupying the embassy ground to assist him. After all, Jesus himself said to these disciples, ye shall receive power when the Holy Ghost comes upon you. And beloved, 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ kept his word. The Holy Spirit came to this earth. Now, because of that, the church of Jesus Christ has all the authority it will ever need to build God's embassies on this earth, including the rebuilding of the lives of those in whom he dwells. Christ sent his own considerable authority to earth with the Holy Spirit. After all, did Jesus Christ not say of himself, and I quote, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, end of quote. Notice Jesus did not say here that some authority had been given to him. He said that all authority was given to him in heaven and on earth. The epistle to the Philippians, chapter 2, verses 9 through 11 states, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth, and yes, even things under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So how much authority is present in the name of Jesus? Well, according to Paul, there is enough authority to force every created thing, both in the heavens and on this earth, to bow before his name. Now those of us who have believed upon his name have been given a personal letter of authority which cedes to us the right to use his own powerful name. Our letters document our authority. He gives us the right to pray and to command in that name. And these letters have not only been pressed into our hands, they have also been personally inscribed upon our hearts by the King of Kings 
and by the Lord of Lords. Now, the ability to document our authority, beloved, is absolutely crucial. We need these letters so that they can be held as evidence in the face of our spiritual enemy. Without this authority in our hands and on our hearts, beloved, our lives will never be properly rebuilt since our enemy is so powerful and possesses his own dominion and his own authority. Remember now, the devil has a legal right to operate on this earth. The only place where he has no dimension is in an embassy of heaven, in the church. Not the church as a building, beloved, but in the church as a company of born-again believers. When Christ enters our lives through the new birth, we are moved into heaven's embassy, beyond Satan's realm and dominion. And once we are in the embassy of heaven, we are no longer under his rulership. However, now, now listen to pastor. God does not call us to spend all of our time inside the embassy. We are in the world, even though we are not of the world. But when we do leave the confines of the church, the embassy of heaven, and we choose to venture out into Satan's dominion, we can still take our letters of authority and the name of Jesus along with us. You see, these God-given credentials grant us rights and privileges, no matter where we are, just as long as Christ abides in us. Oh, listen, listen to pastor. Beloved, Satan would love to disarm and even kill us. But do you understand this? He cannot do this since we are no longer his subjects. Now, this man, Sanballat, who provides a type and shadow of Satan, illustrates this truth clearly to me. You see, this man would have liked nothing better than to have called his Samaritan militia together. He would have liked nothing better than to surround the defenseless city of Jerusalem. He would have delighted in devouring that city and in killing Nehemiah. But even though Sanballat was a legally appointed governor over a province stronger than the province of Judea, he would not and he did not attack Jerusalem, nor would he dare to assault Nehemiah. He did not dare attack as long as Nehemiah had those two marvelous assets, his letter of authority and the captains and horsemen of the Imperial Guard. You see, it was those loyal troops who stood beside Nehemiah, ready at a moment's notice to do battle in his behalf. The moment that Nehemiah arrived in Jerusalem, accompanied by these assets, Sanballat's power was literally broken. Of course, he continued to harass, and of course, he continued to create disruptions, but his actual authority over Judea was totally destroyed by the letters of the king and by the king's envoy. Now, beloved, do you understand this? We Christian believers have the very same advantages at our disposal. When the King of kings and the Lord of lords sends his Holy Spirit to us, he gives to him his own divine authority to rebuild our fallen lives. He even sends heavenly soldiers along with his Holy Spirit. These heavenly soldiers, which are called angelic hosts in the Scripture, are armed, beloved, 
and they are more than ready to do battle in our behalves when we dispatch them. You see, angels are no less than God's ministering spirits assigned to protect and serve his saints. The epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 14 states, Are not angels all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? You see, beloved, the ministry pursued by these angels involves guidance, it involves comfort, it involves protection, and it involves judgment, all in behalf of God's chosen, God's elect, those that God has picked to be saved. And you see, these ministering angels are constantly at work in the behalf of God's chosen. As a matter of fact, Psalms chapter 91 Verses 11 through 12 states, and I quote, For he, meaning God, shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, to keep you in all of your ways. See, he can't take you out of God's hands. And he goes on to say, These angels shall bear you up in their hands lest you dash your foot against a stone. Oh, beloved, I hope you understand what I'm saying. These heavenly beings, the angelic hosts, are unparalleled in their abilities to protect the saints of God at any time. Now, here's the key. They can protect God's saints at any time they are called upon to do so. They don't thrust themselves When you call upon them, they do so. In fact, the great warrior angel, the archangel Michael, according to the 12th chapter of the book of Daniel, has been assigned one task, and that task is to protect the entire state of Israel. And if you know the history of Israel since 1948, you will understand that Michael has been involved in never ending combat with Satan, as Satan has tried over and over and over again to destroy this tiny state. It is Michael who is protecting the state of Israel. When it looked like Israel was only a day or so away from destruction in the Yom Kippur War, when even the great Moshe Dayan was crying out and considering suicide, The angel Michael was at work, deceiving the Egyptians, drawing them out of their cover, protecting this tiny state. And beloved, we must believe the we who are the blood-bought people of God must must remember that like ancient Sanballat, Satan has never been concerned for our well-being. Do you understand that? If you're listening to me today and you're not a child of God, let me tell you what Satan is doing to you. He is destroying you. He's not doing anything for you. He's doing something to you. He's not concerned for your well-being. Just like Sanballat hated the Jews, Satan also hates 
human beings, but he especially hates God's children. And he despises us because we have been born of God and because his right to rule our lives has been broken. You see, our new king, the one who has birthed his own divine life into us, loves us with an everlasting love. Do you understand that? Do you understand that? He's touched by the feelings of our infirmities. But above all else, our new king desires to stop the deterioration, the breaking down of our lives and our emotions and our finances. He wants, our king does, he wants his spirit to come and rebuild us. So he has sent to us a heavenly Nehemiah with letters of authority and a band of warrior angels to guarantee that our spiritual enemy will not be able to thwart the work that the Holy Spirit has been commissioned to do in our lives. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. If you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to connect with Ariel Ministries on Facebook and Instagram and subscribe to our email list at arielministries.com. That's Ariel spelled A-R-I-E-L. We look forward to keeping you updated on upcoming episodes and projects. If you would like to support the missional efforts of Ariel Ministries in Thuraka, Kenya with each one feed one, we'd like to remind you that 10% of all donations to Ariel Ministries will support this missional effort. Visit arielministries.com give for online donations and other methods of giving. To learn more about the Thuraka mission, you can visit arielministries.com missions. You can also listen to episode 26 for a deeper dive into how our relationship with each one feed one and the McCarter family started over 35 years ago, where we are today, and where we're headed in the future. 